And welcome to a new edition of Beyond the Headline, the news and news analysis podcast by the Bay Area News Group. I'm your host, Mercury News crime reporter Robert Salonga, and also with me is my usual co-host, Matthias Gaffney, investigative reporter with the East Bay Times. Matthias, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. And so today we will be peeling the layer behind uh, our experiences covering the very tragic ghost ship warehouse fire in Oakland that claimed uh, 36 lives. And with me to help steer that conversation is award-winning investigative reporter Tom Peel over at the East Bay Times. Tom, how are you doing? Fine, Robert. How are you? Good, good. And also with us is the Oakland City Beat reporter for the East Bay Times and Oakland Tribune, David DeBolt. Glad to be here, Rob. And uh, also with us, uh, the a man who has covered the two deadliest fires in the, in the history of the city of Oakland, uh, Bay Area News Group photojournalist Carl Monden. How are you doing, Carl? Doing great. Thanks for having me. And so we'll just we'll just get right into it. Uh, mo- much of the uh, fire has been well well chronicled, well covered. We're not going to uh, just kind of restate uh, what most folks have already uh, read and seen. So. I want to start by uh, take, giving it to Matthias, who is one of our first reporters on scene, and just kind of walk us through um, what it was like on uh, you know late Friday, early Saturday morning. It's one of these really big breaking news stories that was kind of rare in that I was actually scheduled to work Saturday morning, um, so it wasn't like I was thrown out there um, as we scrambled to um, uh, cover, and I was actually... One of our colleagues, Malika Fraley, texted my wife while I was sleeping um, to alert me to wake me up. Um, and she actually happened. Fortunately, she was up in the middle of the night um, nursing her baby um, and was uh, able to alert me. So when I got out there, I got out there about 7 a.m. And our colleague, Harry Harris, was out there and maybe a radio reporter and TV reporter. I think that was it at the time. Um, and... When I showed up to the scene, you know, there's crime tape blocking off maybe um, two city blocks. And and there's still light smoke coming up from uh, the ghost ship warehouse. It's kind of a gray and lavender facade building. And you can see the, the charred sides of the building already. And other than that, by the time I arrived, there wasn't, um, you know, people standing around who were involved in the fire or any survivors or anything like that. Um, it was mostly firefighters, police. Um, they were fired, been out for a while. There were people on the roof looking down. Um, but when it really kind of hit me was there's a Wendy's parking lot right across the street. And that's kind of where uh, we were just hanging out next to the fire chief. At that time, it was so early in, in this whole thing that we had just complete access to the fire chief who was there and she was informally just telling us everything. And, and, um, we had learned already that nine, there were nine confirmed fatalities, but I remember asking her, you know, how many people are still missing? We're hearing that there's unaccounted. And that's when, uh, she told us they thought there was about 24 people still missing. And that's, that's when I, I kind of remember that moment of, of thinking, I mean, already, obviously, it was clearly just a huge tragedy, but I didn't realize the scale and enormity that that um, it was. And I knew right then that this was this was going to be, you know, um, just on completely just the journalist side, this was going to be 
weeks, months, years of work that we're going to be looking at this tragedy, just trying to find out what happened, who these people are. It just, I could see it all kind of, um, um, in our world of what was going to happen. Um, and so that's kind of the, the initial, um, thing. And then I went to where we learned where victims were, were, um, hold up survivors, family, friends, they were in a nearby substation and I was the first reporter to arrive at the scene there. And it was just really depressing. People were crying, hugging each other. Um, there was a room in the back and people were in there, some survivors covered in blankets. Um, everyone just kind of was staring off into space or looking at their phone, trying to get information. It was, it was a pretty surreal scene. Tom, when did you get pressed into duty? Uh, I've got a much less dramatic um, story about that than Matthias does. I was home and in my study and and working on a book proposal when uh, Carl texted me a one-word text that um, was a profanity in cap locks. And I thought, well, either something's going on or they just closed down the newspapers. So I texted him back, and he started filling me in on what was going on out there. And I just knew by instinct that the scene would be well covered. So I sent a bunch of emails to editors saying, I'm going into the office. I'll start sifting through property records and try to find some of the backstory about who owns this building and what its history might be. And then my editor at the Merck, Mike Frankel called me and he was already in his car driving to Oakland um, to kind of try to run things here. So we were in here in the Oakland office probably about 9.30 and it didn't, I started looking through immediately through some online databases for the owner and identified Chor Ng and Mike came in and then we, he, um, still likes to get his hands dirty with the reporting. So he was actually helping me trying to get enough information together to post something pretty quickly, just on the rudimentary ownership of the building. And we stumbled on the fact that the Oakland code enforcement office had been out there the month before that was listed in, on, in their online data that we got to pretty quickly. And that was, that sort of immediately get our attention. What were they there for? What was going on? There was a report of some type of interior structure at the property, an internal structure, they called it. And that immediately, knowing kind of already there were some reports about what this place was like, it immediately started to raise questions to me about what was going on in there. And it also, we knew very early on that the building was um, permitted only for a warehouse in a commercial zone. So it immediately raised questions about what kind of dance party was this. There were online headlines all over the country that it was a nightclub. And we knew pretty quickly that that was not accurate. So we just started really just, you know, immediately tearing into that, that kind of, uh, those kind of records. And, and Carl, uh, when were, when were you on scene? Um, well, as opposed to the Oakland Hills fire, which I was shooting as it was burning on this fire, I was unable to come over on the first day because um, of family obligations. So I didn't get over to the actual warehouse scene until um, Sunday morning, which is my usual shift. 
and um, you know the emotions on the faces of the officials who were briefing the media, which at that time had grown to I don't know how many cameras were there, maybe 50 cameras. You know, the international media had descended upon the place already. Um, Los Angeles had a huge contingent up there. And yet, despite the size of the media coverage and the number of fatalities in this fire, there was really not a lot to photograph for a visual journalist because of the um, scope of the fire, the, um, the, um, the physical scope of the fire. As compared to, so my experiences are completely different between the 25 years apart that this um, event happened. That fire in 1991 was, of course, 26 people passed, lost their lives, and the, um, but the, the the scar on the community, the physical scar on the community was was massive. I mean, 3,000 homes were lost, but it spread across square miles and burned for two days, uh, but this fire was, I don't even know what the square foot of that warehouse is, but it's not a large warehouse, and to see the um, the same type of loss of life, greater, yet in this just tightly packed box is, um, it, it's just going to be more of a contrast, though so I think the impact on the community is going to be just just the same. David, uh, you cover you cover Oakland as a city, uh, like you, me, and Tom. You know, we're long we're longtime Oakland residents. Uh, you know, what what when did you find out, and at what point did you did the enormity of this start to see, sink into you? Well, on Saturday morning, um, I woke up to missed calls from from editors. And as I was checking that, I got a phone call from a friend here in Oakland um, who, who said, hey, I'm sure you're busy. You're probably down at the scene. This is crazy. And she was she was crying, and I had no idea what she was talking about. And I had to kind of slow her down and be like, wait, what's going on? And she told me what had happened in the nine fatalities at that time and the fact that she had close friends that were still unaccounted for. Um, and, and then I got another call from another friend with a similar story. And I started to realize I've always known, you know, I've lived in Oakland for about 12 years or so. And the, the community here is, you know, if you hang out and you live here in Oakland, you know, you know just how small it can be. Um, friends of friends died in that fire and the, the, the scale of it. And as far as the, the separation from one to another is very small. Um, I've never seen anything like this and I've never seen so many people from, you know, I, I, I have friends here in Oakland who have no relation at all to anybody in that fire and they've lived here for 30 years, 40 years, or they grew up here and they've, they've never seen anything like this here in Oakland. You know, we're, we're, we're unfortunately accustomed to, you know, unfortunate or deadly situations on a daily basis. Um, whether it's shootings or, you know, the death of four police officers in 2009 or the Oakland Hills fire or the Loma Prieta earthquake. 
but this has certainly seemed to strike a chord with with everybody you know that it, it, it could have been them it could have been their child it could have been someone they know and people are hurting all over town um and and they're you know searching for answers but they certainly are waiting you know and and grieving and it's going to be a long time before you know these before the conversation, you know, stops. I mean, like, wherever I've been, you know, this week, people are talking about this nonstop, and 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 they're all hurting. And it's you know, it's 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 difficult for you know for the average person in this town to fathom. And I think Carl said it best. You know, the the you know the Oakland Hills fire was 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 widespread. You know, three thousand homes burned. And in this case, it's one structure and the loss of life is greater. And, you know, it, it's it's unfathomable. And after the uh, and everyone can feel free to chime in on this on this question. But after the fire was out and the recovery, it becomes it goes from a rescue to a recovery uh, mission. You know, a lot of storylines uh, started emanating um, and just kind of. Uh, again, feel free to chime in. But what, what beyond the tr- the direct and immediate tragedy, what other stories started, uh, you know, kind of surfacing uh, to to you to all of you respectively, as far as this? Okay, this this is what's happening, and wh- whether it had to do with uh, you know, kind of the inspection or uh, the response. Uh, just kind of uh, feel free to um, chime in on you know what other stories start popping up in your head. Um, beyond kind of the immediacy? Well, I got just talking to people at the scene. um, I mean, already the fire chief very early on was telling me, you know, firefighters had a big issue getting in and fighting this fire. It it was a total, she called it a maze inside and they had trouble accessing it and had to retreat eventually. And she said um, there was... very early on, she said there was a quote, makeshift staircase. And so very quickly, um, it came to my attention that there's probably going to be some issue in there of the habitability, fire codes, that kind of stuff. You know, those red flags jumped up that, um, this wasn't a normal fire that you fight. Um, and so that there was going to be those issues coming up. And then, you know, as I, started reporting on, I, I, I was in touch a lot with Tom on that first day because he was in the office and we'd share information and he'd tell me that, you know, I was at the press conferences and I had access to a lot of the officials. This was a Saturday. So, you know, you know, city halls not open, you know, um, different offices aren't open. So he'd relay any questions. I relay information back. Um, but that was a big one that I could see was going to, um, uh, be a big storyline going forward on the tragedy. And I heard, they started hearing the same thing from, and it was, it was odd also just in people who were from that scene, who were friends, it was, it seemed like it was not really a secret that this place was a fire trap and they'd call it that. And, and so I knew that was going to be something that we'd chase down. And I know Tom, you were on your end, you were, you were, um, finding similar things. And when you were digging up through, through those records. Yeah. The, um, you know, it didn't take really long for, you know, any good reporters BS meter to, to start ringing on this thing that we knew that somewhere there was some type of regulatory failure as to how this place existed. It just made 
no sense given the descriptions that were coming out of it, the things that the fire chief was saying, um, the immediate zoning issue that we flagged that this was in you know a regulatory sense a legitimate and licensed operation to run a dance party or for that matter to be home to maybe a couple of dozen artists at a time and then we learn that there are things going on there like oh one artist has welding equipment and another one is a jewelry maker and the jewelry maker deals with hot metal so and open flame so he's got extra fire extinguishers in his cubicle because he recognizes the danger um it just didn't take much to know within hours that you know something was seriously wrong, and I think it's now we're learning that it's it's wrong on multiple levels. But you know, getting a lot of that on a weekend is at least a little challenging, um, and it took a while for you know for a lot of stuff to kind of fall into place to begin to figure out, trying to figure out when various inspectors from various branches of city government were there and how the place got to this condition, how it was turned into a fire trap, yet it was a place that hosted dozens of people um, for these monthly dance parties upstairs. And for this question for Tom and David, just to continue along the lines of what you're talking about, um, if you could speak to that the process of trying to get answers uh, from from city officials, uh, primarily the mayor, uh, code enforcement, uh, fire officials. Uh, you just had a piece that ran in in today's edition of the East Bay Times and Mercury News about uh, no fire in no known fire inspections being done here. But if you could kind of speak to that, the idea of um, you know in in the immediate wake of this fire. You know, there's a lot. There, there was a lot of kind of push and pull between city officials and the press, and uh, just again, if you could kind of speak to that, how how that was, and you know where where things stand right now as far as uh, you know public accountability issues. Well, you know, David um, and I talked Sunday night, and we agreed the first thing that he should do would be go to City Hall Monday morning and ask for the very routine records that reporters can get, anybody can get sort of, you know, over the counter at various places like um, the building department for, for code enforcement and routine fire inspection reports. And, and David got just, you know, shut down, turned away, told no, no, um, no rudimentary really, um, compliance with the Public Records Act, which allows for oral requests for records. David didn't need to do anything more than simply ask for these things. And even though they could cite, say, 10 days um, to get back to him, the clear expectation was that these are records that are regularly available. David, why don't you kind of tell us how that went down there that day? Sure. Um, You know, previously I have requested similar documents. I've, I've covered one warehouse fire here in Oakland in March 2015 in which two people died down or in West Oakland and also a house out you know, by the Oakland Zoo where one woman died. And you know, generally I go to the counter at, at, at the building department and I request documents and they, they print them out and they give them to me. 
Um, in this case, there was a mandate from the city administrator's office that no documents related to 1315 31st Avenue were to be released to media members and the public. Um, there were at least you know two emails that we know of that were sent out, one by the executive assistant to the fire chief and another from the city administrator's office instructing city employees not to discuss or hand out you know, documents, whether they're fire inspections or code enforcement, you know, documents to the media or the public. And that went to as high as uh, city council members. What we kind of, it, it reminded me a lot of, to be honest, um, and Tom, we covered a lot of this together, actually, the Berkeley balcony collapse um, in that immediately, I think it was also a weekend when it happened, to be honest. Um, and that, that no, meant, it was, like, it Monday. Was a it was a weekend, okay. Yeah. Um, but we we knew, I mean, it was kind of obvious what we, you know, we had to get permit stuff from the building departments and whatnot. And I, I my recollection was, again, we'd walk up where on any other day, you ask for any other thing, you'd get this document within five minutes after asking for it at the counter. But in this case, they said, no, we're not, we're not um, uh, sending those out right now. Um, we've been told not to to release those. And it's it seems like this is kind of um, starting to happen now where where these documents, um, they try to the city or whatever agency is involved um, wants to kind of make sure they get a full understanding of what the documents say before um, releasing them. And it, it comes in these controlled ways, um, whereas, you know, obviously they're um, these are public documents and they're supposed to be. Um, handing out when when asked for, and so I don't know. Do you see any parallels in that in that case, Tom? Oh, I do. Um, you know, Berkeley almost gave Oakland a template on how to deal with this. They immediately put a put a lid on records, and let's just say that some of the things about the balcony collapse and this fire were, as reporters, were similar to us. When was it inspected? Um, each scene inspected, what did inspectors find? What did they know? Was there something wrong with that balcony, which we later learned there was, or was it simply an overcrowding thing? And in both instances, we got very, very shut down in terms of just being able to get the kind of stuff we routinely get without having to go through the rigmarole of formal requests, letters and everything. And the Oakland stuff was you know, it was infuriating and it was clearly, it was a control thing. They were attempting to control reporting and, and media work on where this was going. They wanted to keep a lid on things when they had to have known that there were going to be, there were regulatory issues with this building. I mean, they had, they had to know that immediately. As you said, the fire, when the, you know, the fire chief went in there and, or said the firefighters had an immediate problem with things that were very much in violation of the fire code. So, you know, I think, you know, by the end of the day, Monday, um, one of our lawyers, Jeffrey Carolyn, had sent a letter to the city administrator um, demanding that we get immediate access and saying, this is nothing more than your attempts to control the story. And they said, well, we're going to compile the records. Well, compiling the records doesn't, 
negate their responsibility to provide those records to the public upon request, not in an orchestrated release, which, by the way, um, is not living up to its promises because we were supposed to have a lot of records by now. Um, and we've got, you know, a smattering of code enforcement records. And that's it. We still don't have fire records. We're now, you know, reported today that it looks like, told there are no fire inspection reports, but we know that there was a fire at the building in the 80s. We know that there was a fire in the building outside the building in 2014 that would meet the that documentation would meet the requirements of, of giving to us. And, you know, we don't even have those yet. And so clearly, uh, um, they're manipulating the process. Right. And uh, the, to just to uh, switch gears a little bit, uh, you know, David, as 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 the as the city beat reporter, um, you know, want to t- take a little time to talk about uh, the victims, maybe not individually, because unfortunately there's so many. Uh, but it, w- what has been lost here be- beyond the 36 souls? Uh, the these uh, these victims represented a very uh, significant slice of the artistic community, of the creative community in the city. Uh, that creative. Uh, you know, kind of uh, brain power in in the city, just just from your time and uh, from your um, you know kind of connections to, like you said, uh, friends of friends. Uh, you know, what what has the city lost? It's devastating. I mean, the, Oakland is a special place. I mean, people live here for a reason. I mean, the the creative community here is one of. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a pillar of the community. The people that died in that fire were, you know, they were at the center of, of all that. You know, we're talking about musicians, artists, DJs, um, you know, the, the, and, I, and it goes beyond Oakland. People who are a part of the art scene here know, know people all throughout the country, whether it's in, in Baltimore or New York City. Um, this, this, you know, this city and, and Mayor Libby Schaaf's administration have championed Oakland as being, um, you know, a, a a place for artists, a safe place for artists, you know, to come and congregate and be able to, you know, perform with, you know, and there are spots like this throughout Oakland. When I was younger, I used to go to, you know, warehouses in West Oakland, and this this predates me. This the warehouse scene and the underground scene, whether it's arts or music, you know, dates back to the late '70s and the early '80s. And it's always once once manufacturing jobs left Oakland, there was this huge stock of warehouses in West Oakland and East Oakland that were empty, and I'm not sure who who figured this out, but you know, the, the, you know, at some point at that time, artists started moving in, and the rent was was dirt cheap, and they figured out, you know, these these landlords didn't have any tenants and needed tenants, and it was a beautiful thing that happened. You know, people started coming here, and you know, the, and they're the makers of things. They make you know everything. You know, I mean, if you if you look at Burning Man, a lot of you know the art that you know, travels you know to Nevada is is made in Oakland. You know, First Friday was was an idea that came out of the warehouses. And I I went to the first First Friday. It was very small. It's now very large. But that that was you know people who were were in the scene here in Oakland and decided we don't want to you know appear to be elitist and we want to show everybody our our art and the things we make. 
and they started, you know, they started galleries here in uptown Oakland, um, you know, before there really was an uptown here in Oakland, and the scene has, has blossomed, you know, so, I mean, people are hurting. My friends who are artists here, here in this town, um, you know, they, 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 they're still grieving. It's, it's, you know, it'll be a week, you know, tonight since the fire happened, but this is going to take a really long time for people to, you know, fully understand and accept exactly what happened that night. One little tidbit, there was a, there was a bike on 19th street, you know, I think the Webster outside of a bar and a, and a record shop there that my friends run. And, uh, it had sat there since Friday evening and everybody was worried that it belonged to one of the victims, and there was kind of talk and rumors and all that. And I was there when, you know, when the guy showed up um, just uh, Wednesday evening and unlocked his bike. And what he said is he, he, of course, you know, people were applauding inside the bar and at the record store. They were really happy, you know, to know that the bike's owner was alive and well. But his life was on hold for all those days. He had friends that died in the fire, you know. Picking up his bike was the last thing on his mind, and I think that's true for a lot of people here. Like, there's, you know, kind of life has kind of stood still, um, you know, and, and, you know, what, the, you know, the daily tasks we have to do are, are, you know, not no longer all that important because, you know, people are taking care of each other and making sure that Oakland stays what it is. I mean, bartenders gave away their tips. Um, organizations are donating the you know people are fundraising to help these warehouse spaces you know you know, come in or you know be uh, legitimized as far as codes go without having city hall involved and i think that's a beautiful thing and that's what makes oakland oakland no that's that's good that's good to, that's good to hear um we're we're running out of time here but i wanted to throw it back to carl um, again, who has the perspective of covering the two, what are now the two deadliest fires in the city's history? Um, starting with you, Carl, and then on to uh, the to uh, Tom and David. Where is this going to fall in you know kind of the the book on Oakland as far as the enormity and the historical significance? I know we're only a week out, but there's already I I can't help but have that feeling that this is going to be in 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 that pantheon. Yeah, I think it's going to be a, you know, rebirth. But it's going to blossom up, and nothing's going to keep Oakland down. If I, if I didn't have ties to San Francisco, I would be living in Oakland. I think this is really the Oakland Bay Area in a lot of ways. I mean, if you go back way 75 years before the Oakland Hills fire, we had the 19. Well, I can't do the math, but the 1906 earthquake. Most of the people who lost their lives in that event died from fire. And many that survived fled San Francisco to Oakland. Tens of thousands of people used Oakland as refuge and made it their homes. You know, we've been hearing about all the artists leaving San Francisco because of the the cost of living and, and such. Um, and that's where these warehouse events have kind of been, you know, fed with um, the creative vitality from throughout the Bay Area. So I think it's really going to. I don't think anything's going to keep going down. There is one parallel that I want to... The, the pleasure I get in working with reporters is they get to dig into things below what I get to do with a photographer, which is pretty much to deal with things on the face and seeing their work to find accountability 
behind this event and what can be done to change it. Um, when I think about the parallels between Oakland Hills and Ghost Ghost Fire is the um, the pinch point where most of the people lost their lives. That stairway that we keep hearing about in that Oakland in the uh, in the warehouse, people are just uh, I don't know pointing fingers at you know the stupidity of building something like that out of wood. You know, I can understand what they're saying, but Look back at the Oakland Hills fire, a large percentage of people who died there died in a pinch point, too. It's called Sharing Cross Way up in the Oakland Hills, just uh, just north of 24. Um, there's a lot of finger pointing then, too. How could we have a place where people can egress and get, you know, fast access out of a, a dangerous situation? As far as I know, Sharing Cross Way is just as wide as it ever was. It's, it wasn't expanded. Um, something were to happen up there again, you know, we could have the same problem. So, you know, when, when you guys are looking for accountability, I think we got to continue on that. We can't forget because it's, you know, these things happen time and time again. And I just, it breaks my heart to see it. And what about uh, David and Tom, as far as where is this going to stand kind of in the, in the timeline of Oakland's history? You know, Oakland has survived a lot. I mean, how many cities had their school superintendent assassinated with cyanide pit bullets? Um, you know, how many? Well, how many cities have had Oakland's history of radicalism? And something as major as the, as the Hills Fire, and then the Loma Prieta earthquake, where uh, double-deckered freeways collapsed upon each other uh, trapping and killing people. How many cities have had a local newspaper reporter assassinated for stories working on? Yet, Oakland always seems to manage, you know, to bounce back. Oakland is probably now, after all the things I just listed, more vibrant than it's ever been. Um, you know, there's a, there's a certain resilience here that, that sort of intercedes with all these tragic events in the city's history. Um, I mean, this is going to stick around for a while. This, this, as we say in the news business, this story's got legs, and their legs about the people who, storylines about all the people who lost their lives, storylines about Derek Almina, who ran this place, storylines about how some of the city's systems appear to have failed. Um, there's a lot still coming with this story too. I mean, no one is. This is still early in where how this is going to play out historically. Nobody's been charged yet. We know that there's a criminal investigation. We know that there are going to be obviously be lawsuits against the city, probably the building owner. You know, there's this is going to stick around for a long, long time. But you know, this city seems to survive such things. I'll just add to that. I think Carl and Tom said that beautifully. Um, I think for a lot of people in Oakland, they're, they'll never forget where they were the moment they learned about the magnitude of this fire on that Saturday morning or Friday night. Um, it's one of those moments that I think is going to stick around with everybody for the rest of their lives. And they're going to know <clears throat> what they were doing, where they were, how they heard it. And they're never going to forget that. I know I won't. Well, that's all the time we have for now. Um, gentlemen, I appreciate the time.
um, just want to let everyone know that um, please continue uh, viewing our coverage of the our excellent coverage of the uh, ghost ship warehouse fire at eastbaytimes.com, uh, mercurynews.com, and um, all of the uh, Twitter handles for everyone who participated today will be on a face page uh, f- with with this podcast. And uh, so again, thank you for listening to another edition of Beyond the Headline. I imagine this won't be the first time we'll visit uh, this story and this issue uh, moving forward. So, uh, gentlemen, thank you for your time. Take care. First thing, we'll have a Thanks, Rob.